Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Ask the composer Matt O'Coin where his music comes from, and he might say it's a version of space exploration. In the next breath, it's hide-and-seek among invisible subparticles of music. Or he'll say, making music has always been a game of if-then. Pick one note, that's your if. Now find its then and make it your new if. Let the energy inside the musical elements take you where you're going. Matt O'Coin, still in his 20s, has been anointed for the range of his output, for revoicing Walt Whitman in the hellish field hospitals of our Civil War, for another opera in progress on Eurydice in the underworld of Greek mythology, for acing a MacArthur Genius Grant last year, also for his chamber and piano pieces, for his conducting too, and his poetry. And then there's his gift for Gab. He is playing and talking his way this hour, through a new piece for piano and violin before a full house in the City Space event room at WBUR. I'm asking him to start by tuning our ears. Matt, let's plunge. This is the moment in Symphony Hall where people are, particularly with a new music, they're studying their program notes and sort of, what the hell are we in for? Get us ready, and if you need any sort of quick product, I'm dying to hear the sound but I'm going to want to ask you later sort of where it comes from historically, emotionally, in 2019. What's, what should we know? That's an easy one, Chris. <laughs> well, I'm a mutt, basically, you know, in the good old American tradition of being a mm -hmm. mutt. I think my music comes from many places. I've had a funny kind of circular path of starting out as an all-classical kid pretty early on and then turning my attention away and absorbing a lot of other influences and then kind of, I think, in a way, coming home and, and figuring out that writing music down, which is maybe the only thing that distinguishes what we think of as classical music, is that the score is kind of the thing more than the album or the the recorded document. Performance, even. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because mm -hmm. there are many performances, but it kind of all relates back to this thing. That, that that felt like home base. But in the interim, I'd absorbed a million other influences. So I think that the music comes from, from a search, search for a kind of ecstasy, mm. or it, it, it's- High, a, shall we say? Yes, <laughs> body high, spirit high, and trying to unlock that through these basic building blocks of musical materials. And I think historically, to, to bring in that part yeah. of the question, but we're in such an interesting moment in what, whatever the heck the classical world is. I think a lot of composers are throwing their arms wide open and embracing these musical building blocks that are so deep in our psyche hmm. that I think we had a little bit of a nervous breakdown about in the second half of the 20th century. And so we're returning Deep in our to psyches as opposed to deep in our historical record or something, or our, or our literature of the past. Both. <laughs> uh. I think both. The reason I'm bringing this up is that the first piece that Kier and I will be playing has a middle movement, which is really this big, long meditation on 
a few very basic harmonies. Mm -hmm. It's a way of trying to listen to those harmonies and figure out what they might want to do. Do you want to clue us in? Sure. I say it partly because at the end of last year, we knew we wanted to do something on Leonard Bernstein's 100th year, and we thought of all manner of critical observation. And then we thought, no, let's just you know wallow in West Side Story, which we did. And the story that even my grandchildren grasped immediately was it's all about the tritone. And that's a harmonic notion. Maria, I've just met a girl named Maria. But in that general context, using a few harmonic tricks or ideas or bases, what do you mean? Yeah, well, you know, the West Side Story tritone is magical because it, it's within a, an otherwise kind of stable context. Right. It's you know, the flatted fifth a, in jazz. It's the C to F sharp or G flat or whatever. Totally. It's, uh, it's more basic than that in this piece. Hmm. I think one of the most resonant things you can do on a piano is to play particularly a D flat major chord in the lower register, both hands spread out. It's the kind of thing that a, you know, 15 year old who's feeling a lot of feelings could wallow in <laughs> This sound. Wow. So I wanted to return to that sound and just... A D-flat major chord. Yeah, just play it until it felt like it needed to change. And wow. man, it wanted to do all <laughs> kinds of things. The piece goes from this extremely stable-seeming place to essentially noise, total noise. that fascinates me that that energy is locked in these chords because I remember writing it when I got to the noise place it was like how did I back myself into this corner and how am I going to get out and that's mm. you know the point of the piece is figuring wow, out wow there's out. the plot of the piece right there how did I get into this chord and how am I going to get out of it exactly and so mm. the the middle section which is by far the the biggest longest section was really the root of it. And now they're, the piece is in three sections, but really the first movement is a way in and the third movement is a way out, kind of at the macro scale. Mm -hmm. So the piece is kind of like a giant crater with an approach and a, a departure. It's a strange form. I mean, you could say that it's kind of a, in a way it's a violin sonata because it is three movements and the, the middle one is the slow one, but it totally doesn't have those proportions because mm -hmm. the middle movement is this giant, the giant thing, mm. and the first two are much more shadowy and, and quicker. Back to the historical thing, but really in the context of 2019, why now? In what sense is this a piece about now, or is it? I'm, I'm not always sure we know, <laughs> any artist knows, how a particular piece relates to the, the moment. It's something that Auden once said, which I love. I can set out to write a poem that's a love poem. I can't set out to write a 1945 poem. Mm -hmm. It's going to be that anyway. But if I zoom the camera out and look not just at my own work, but the whole ecosystem, mm -hmm. I think that there are more things in history available right now than there have ever been. And so in a funny way, the past is closer to us than it's ever been before. Because something from a thousand years ago and something from a year ago are just you know next to each other on a Spotify playlist, as right. opposed to on YouTube too. On YouTube as well, and you know one links to the other through strange algorithms. You know, it's not mm -hmm. just music from this time. 
in a way, history has been thrown into this blender. Mm. There's a term for it. I forget where it originated. E-T-E-W-A-F. Everything that ever was available forever. <laughs> Which is a kind of a techie idea. You know, so that sounds kind of creepy and utopian. But I think that's a huge influence right now is that you don't have to dig through a secondhand record store for for the more obscure things. Mm. And even before that, you would have had to gone, you know, gone to a library and, and dig. So I think what you're seeing is that a lot of things from history, people are drawing on, you know, medieval music or music from, you know, my boyfriend has been showing me these unbelievable field recordings recorded in all over Africa for the past 50 years. And it's just harmonies and combinations of sounds mm. that I've never imagined. The first note blows my mind, and it's a bunch of people playing on car horns in West Africa in 1974. You know, that kind of thing being available, I think, feeds this kind of sense of, of synthesis. So I think, in a way, where, where I'm at is, is a moment of synthesis. It's not a conscious thing. It's not like I'm going to go out and seek this ingredient and blend it with that. Mm. But the fact is that we're just absorbing things from a much wider range than Duke Ellington was or Bartok was or Haydn was or really anybody mm. before the past few So years. where does this conscious craft of a harmonic chase with no obvious rules come from? Who's done it before? Who, who are you doing it with? Well, I mean, certainly the, the idea of repeating a chord until first it loses its meaning and then mm. it fills up with a new meaning, hopefully, mm. is something that I owe a debt to the early minimalists for, you know, things like Terry Riley's In C, which is just, you know, you think you know what C major is, let me, let me really bathe your ears in it for mm. 45 minutes and then see if you know what C major is. That kind of extreme tactic is is something that I am hugely grateful for. I don't always think that it makes for a fully satisfying piece if that's your explicit motive. It's more mm -hmm. like a, it adds a tool to our toolkit mm -hmm. to be able to do that. But I want the piece to also have a spiritual journey that goes beyond that, mm. that point. Mm. And I think a composer that I think the piece owes a lot to is, is Messiaen in the Quartet for the End of Time. There's, there's movements for piano and violin and, and piano and cello that sound superficially quite a lot like the beginning of this in that it's repeated piano chords and a, a singing string melody. Did I hear you say the end of time? Quartet Matt? for the end of time, yeah. I hope, <laughs> and here we are at the end of time well, exactly. in 2019, so it's great. Here are the violinist Keir Gogwilt and the composer Matthew O'Coin at the piano in the first movement of its own accord. Thank you. 
Coming up, more performance and more MattoCoin guidance through this trip we're on. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden, this is Open Source, and here is the full sound of Matto Coin's sonata for piano and violin, its own accord, from the second movement. That accord in the title may have something to do with the D-flat major chord that he's pondering with us. suggestion, I was thinking that it's kind of adventures in and around a D-flat major chord. Is that fair? Or? Yeah, it's not the sexiest title in the world, but <laughs> adventures in D-flat, but yeah, totally. Well, what would you call it? I'd call it its own accord, but <laughs> which is the name of the piece. Yeah, naming pieces is a, is a nightmare. I totally sympathize with why people used to just say symphony and be done with it. There are a lot of other chords in there, Matt. Um, do we want to talk about that? There are a lot of other chords in there. It's, it's an oversimplification to say it's about one in particular because there's melodic stuff in the violin. It's also an exploration of the very high registers of the violin, which not everybody can access, but Keir 
makes it sound easy somehow. It's a very thin filament of sound up there, and I, I liked that color contrast. It's like a beam of light, the violin actually playing something that's, that has a long breath and is lyrical up there, contrasted with this kind of chocolatey, rich <laughs> piano sound. You know, the violin and piano are not a great automatic texture. They're totally at odds with each other because the piano is basically a percussion instrument and the violin is a much more liquid instrument. And if you have a few string players plus piano, for example, a, a piano quintet, then it, it's evened out and the string quartet kind of is on an equal footing with the piano. But when it's one-on-one, -on -one, the piano has a distinct advantage in some ways. It's a challenge to get them to play nicely together, but Kier is a real musical brother, and I wanted a piece for the two of us to be able to, to play together. So. Uh, did, did I say I enjoy the piece hugely? I mean, I found it wonderful, wonderful to listen to at the first blush, but I'm also thinking there was a section in the middle piece where you're, I won't say groping, but you're searching of the implications, the root for these chords, and combining them and modulating and looking. I immediately heard Brahms' pieces. Brahms does that. I try to figure out what is the logical, this is not anything like a you know, circle of fifths progression of harmonies, but what are the rules of mm -hmm. sort of, let's find a new path here. I think these things tend to suggest, to reveal themselves mm -hmm. uh, after the fact. And maybe in this case, if I had to you know, be the detective, I would say that the note E natural is set kind of in opposition to the D flat and then Again, I'll, I'll speak up. Yeah, sure. The first note the violin plays is, is this E natural, and then it goes on somewhere else. But later in the movement, it gets stuck there during that very loud, intense part when Kier's playing the same note over and over again. And, and it's like it's trying to... They're, they're trying to work together, or my line is trying to fit itself around the E natural and kind of can't. And then, strangely, at the very end, the very last thing that happens is an open fifth ab above an E natural. I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm only noticing this now, talking to you. I didn't, I, I didn't plan any of that, but it seems that maybe, maybe that's the root uh, dynamic, is that those two kind of implied key areas are kind of circling around each other. <laughs> I, I don't know. Matt, just broadly locate us in the distinctions these days between serious and unserious music, or classical and popular, or improvised or written. Where, where, where are we in, in what we're generally hearing, in hearing in concert halls, hearing in your work, between always said to be two different worlds? Uh, I think it's more like two million different worlds mm -hmm. at the moment, which is not a bad thing. First, I, I'm, I'm personally not a fan of the, of the idea of serious and unserious in any way aligning with classical and popular music. I think there's a lot of classical music that is totally silly, both in, in a good way and a bad way sometimes. Mm -hmm. Since what we think of as classical music really just means something that's rooted in the tradition of playing acoustically, that is music that does not originate with electronically produced sound or, or amplified voices, you know, all music, high, low, 
and everything in between was what we would think of today as classical until a certain point. And of course, there are many artists, sound artists in in every field, in in electronic music and in techno and in jazz, and who are doing really searing investigative work. So right. I don't know if anyone wants to be called serious. It sounds like the kiss of death to me. But there, <laughs> if there is if there is serious music out there, it's all over the place. I think this is this is one branch of many. But one thing that began in the 20th century and continues today is the idea that music is also a form of exploration of the universe and yeah. a, a form of investigation that has a lot to do with science. And people tend to clam up when you compare music to science because it doesn't really sound like much fun. But I personally love the idea when you think of science as exploration of, of you know, not following laws, but finding new laws that are out there. Mm. We're sampling the sound of composer Matt O'Coin in City Space at WBUR. It's a synthesis piece, you know? It's a piece that, that takes the obsessiveness of minimalist music uh, and also a love for the resonant properties of big, fat, romantic classical music mm -hmm. and certain rhythmic tricks that I learned playing jazz or playing, you know, conducting Stravinsky, certain slippy, unstable harmonies that might have come from Thomas Ada's. I think that's the cocktail for that piece, that mm. there's this obsessiveness at the core and, and there are these other influences around the, the margins. But I think we're getting to somewhere where I can actually reveal something new that I've been considering, mm. which is a bit of a, a, an odd idea. I think the question for a lot of us with all the, the breadth of the influence is kind of what do you do with it? You know, do you... Do you consciously throw something out? Do, uh, do you say I'm going to define myself in that tradition? You know, we're in a we're in a moment when branding is the the the, the word of the day. You know, and you've you been branded, to, Matt, right? Uh, yeah, on my arm, you know, with a scalding hot brand. But it's seen as kind of de rigueur to say this is what I do. This is my little niche. This is my corner of the universe. It's 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 as true. in if you're starting a business, you know, you have to say I'm the only one who does. X and define it because of the sheer kind of quantity of, of noise out there. And I've been wrestling with this lately because I recognize that so many things bubble to the surface in my music. And I'd always kind of assumed that my music is one thing, that it's a synthesis, the way that this piece is. Uh, also, you know, I write a lot of opera. 
And in opera, right, we got to get to opera too. Uh, in opera, you need to have so many tools in the kit because if you're going to tell a full dramatic story that's going to last two hours, you know you can't restrict yourself too much. You have to have this wide range of 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 you know other people's experience that can be musicalized in a million different ways. So I've always been a synthesis guy, and I've always mm -hmm. kind of thrown everything into the cauldron and and seen what what emerges but i've started to wonder if it might be worthwhile to think of myself as having multiple voices that are nurtured by different streams of this mm -hmm. because there is a part of me that wants to write exploratory noise-based music that is not always easy to listen to but is hopefully in some way breaking new ground mm -hmm. sonically and there are other times when i just want to write a song you know, for, you know, guitar and piano. And I've always been of the mind that they're kind of the same thing. But I'm beginning to get to a place where I think, well, perhaps they're not, actually. And maybe there are multiple things that I can do. And maybe it will actually allow me to go further if I consciously think, well, this is channel one, this is channel two, this is channel three. I've been influenced in this thinking by the Portuguese uh, poet Fernando Pessoa, Yes. Who, uh, some of you may, may know Pessoa's writing, but he, he wrote under, I think, up to 75 what he called heteronyms, alternate personae. Mm. He gave them all names. He gave them all biographies. And they, they really do sound different from each other. They really do have distinct personalities. And he saw it as a way to expand his palette and not mm. be bound by, you know, it's kind of annoying to just think you have one personality and everything's going to end up that way. So I don't think it's my style to invent literal personae and say, this is a gym and he writes this kind of music. <laughs> but the idea of channels feels really useful. But can I say, I think a lot of people know that you're working on an opera. And there's another sort of multiple channel in itself of drama and music and language. Tell us about that. And do these connect? The piece in progress? Yeah, and the idea of this complicated compromise of different forms in opera. Yeah, so the, the piece that's, uh, that's in the oven right now is an adaptation of, of Sarah Rule's play, Eurydice, which is a beautiful, simple, spare play that we barely had to do anything to it to make it into a, an opera libretto. It tells the Orpheus story, but it's in the 21st century, and it's from Eurydice's point of view. And Sarah poured a lot of herself into the figure of, of Eurydice. Sarah uh, lost her father when she was about 19 years old, and an important figure in the opera is the father, Eurydice's father. So instead of just following Orpheus on the story that, that we know, we follow Eurydice as she dies, passes through the river of forgetfulness, becomes a total amnesiac, and meets her father, in the underworld, mm -hmm. and s has to slowly kind of return to, to who she is. And at the same time, Orpheus is trying to get down there. It's kind of a magical play, I think. It's, it has the, the atmosphere of, 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 of like Alice in Wonderland. You know, it has that kind of sense of the surreal, but with a very light touch. And it's written in beautiful, simple, American 21st century English.
so that's the current piece. And having in the past uh, written my own text, right. it's a huge relief to be working with a playwright because I no longer have to be my own harshest critic and worst enemy and, you know, <laughs> uh, playing both roles. It's, 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 it's great to have a sounding board, hmm. another human being, another voice. And it, this does relate to to the question of, of channels and and uh, which influences pop up at a given time because Sarah is prompting a totally different kind of music from me because I'm engaging with her language mm. and in the case of this play it's really her life story and her her worldview and her sensibility and I think some of her lightness hopefully has found its way into the music and a sense of humor. We, there was a moment early on in our collaboration where Sarah, not really knowing opera very well, said kind of apologetically, you know, there are parts of the play that are, that are funny. Is opera allowed to be funny? <laughs> and it was like, yes, please, God, that's what we need, you know? We've, we've, we've had a, a, a kind of saturation of, of new American operas that are just dark that are dark and uh, in some ways very earnest and very serious. And I think Sarah's play would laugh at all that. Can the music be funny? I think music can totally be funny. Hmm. Um, just, you know, think of, think of PDQ Bach, you know, there's, or Dudley Moore. We, or you Frank know, Lesser. When, I mean, totally. Yeah. Tom Lehrer. I mean, you, our ears are following patterns even if we're not conscious of them so that when those patterns are broken in a funny way, it's, you register. You don't have to be a musician. Mm. Speak of writing a song about Eurydice. Yeah, that's a challenge, right? A song... It's true. I, I mean, I have a lot of stiff competition from like 4,000 years of composers writing, <laughs> <laughs> writing Orpheus pieces. Um, I was in, in Houston last week for a, a concert on the Orpheus theme because there's this fabulous Cy Twombly painting that's mm. Orpheus-related that was hanging so we we did it at the at the Manil collection um, and there were bits of, of my opera and we also did bits of of Monteverdi's L'Orfeo which is the generally considered the first the first opera in this tradition from about 1600 and man it is so maddening it's still the best it is still it's unbelievable the 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 aria that he sings at the gates of hell still hasn't been bettered Coming up, making new opera in a collective of innovative stars. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Composer Matt O'Coyne, young man of many musics, writes prose as well with critical distinction. A very long meditation a few months ago, for example, on the composer who still defines the delicacy, charm, tenderness of French music in the 20th century, Claude Debussy. This was a review of new biographies and then some. You added so much more to it, thinking of immersing yourself 
in Debussy's life and talking about him as a relentless innovator in his own spirit, or searcher in his own spirit. I'd love you to just give folks the short form of the article, but also explain the you in it, in that adventure. Yeah, thanks for, for bringing that up. I, I wrote an article for the New York Review of Books about a recent Debussy biography. It's, it's been 100 years since, since Debussy died. I actually think I'm almost nothing like Debussy. And that's, mm. I think composers are always attracted to the ones who, who do things that he, you could never do. You know, Debussy, uh, like Messiaen, you know, he, he has a very French <laughs> sense of texture and, and unity of texture. There's a velvety, seductive quality to his textures that never, never breaks. Mm. It's, there's, a, there's a unity from the first note he ever wrote to the last in terms of, of sweetness. Uh, I had a teacher once, and she, she would hate me for naming her on this because it's, it's an out-of-context quote, but someone who was born speaking French but ultimately wrote in English, mm. and she said that, in effect, French poets have been fighting the French language for a thousand years trying to make it anything other than sweet, mm. which I think is a fascinating insight because the history of French music in the 20th century is all these composers who are obsessed with violence and surprise. You know, Pierre Boulez about about rupture and surprise and and it never quite works mm. it's almost like there's something in the texture of the language even the musical language that they're using that is helplessly sweet mm. and you, no matter what you do to it you, violent sonic explosions it somehow has, still has this unity so it was, it was a total pleasure to be immersed in, in Debussy's life. He was a really cutting critic. He was brutal to his fellow composers, though he was, he was really right about a few things. He understood that Stravinsky was the best from the very first moment. Mm -hmm. Debussy was also a total, I think, a total jerk in some ways, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. uh, he, was, he really viewed other people as, a, as an inconvenience, especially the women in his life. It's sort of like the emotional connection is nice when he happens to feel needy and the rest of the mm. time the wall comes down. So that was that was a little a little disappointing. But I was I'd never read a full life of Debussy before. And one thing that was heartening to me was some of the the missteps or difficulties early on. I was totally shocked that he got very far along in writing an opera called Rodrigue et Chimène which, if you read the text, it's basically this bloody, you know, Verdi, Verismo opera. Like something from, from the Italian 19th century. It's the most undebussy thing ever. And yet he got talked into doing it and wrote really undebussy music as a result of, of being stuck there. And I know the feeling of feeling like you're outgrowing an opera in the process of writing it mm. uh, and feeling that maybe this isn't, oof, maybe this isn't me anymore. So good to know Claude had, had the same problem. Mm. 
Matt, thank you. And we will continue maybe after, but on with the music. Sure. So the second and final piece is called With Care. That is also the name of a an evening-long dance piece created by and for my ensemble, Amok. And just a quick tangent about Amok. Amok stands for the American Modern Opera Company. We are an ensemble of, of singers, musicians, and dancers who work together to create discipline-colliding new works. And my hope is in the future that I can focus more and more of my creative activity towards Amok. Its members are all independent-minded and pioneering artists in their own right. And, and we think of the ensemble as a place to make stuff together. And with care was the, the brainchild of Bobby Jean Smith, one of our amazing dancers, formerly of, of the Batsheva Dance Company in Tel Aviv. And Bobby wanted to create an exploration in dance and music of just the basic concept of care. What is it to care for somebody? What is it to be careful? What's the difference between being careless and carefree? And the evening is lightly based on the idea of a, of a couple and a couple's relationship. And the wife in the relationship has had a, a strange sickness where she was asleep sort of Rip Van Winkle style for, for many, many years and has emerged and doesn't quite know who she is. So there's a kind of a sense of dementia and mm. of trying to, to love someone through the dementia both mm. in both directions. And all of this is very abstracted. You wouldn't get that plot line seeing the piece, but it's physicalized in a way that I think is, is powerful. And I wrote just a little bit of music for the end of the piece. The story about it is that I wrote what you're about to hear, which is for two violins. Kier and Miranda, amongst two violinists, are present on stage in With Care as kind of embodiments of the characters, uh, as well as two dancers. And I wrote... I wrote exactly what you're going to hear, and it ended up being kind of too much to dance to. It wasn't right for the moment. So I tore it up and, and wrote something simpler uh, that actually fit what the dance needed. But I kept the original version for concert purposes. Um, and this is certainly my music in its most obsessive mode. <laughs> hmm. Cyclical, intensifying over one note, denatural this time. Uh, so it's it, it stays in one place harmonically, but d deepens and, and gets more more intense hmm. until it kind of bursts near the end. Hmm. So uh, I think we should welcome Kier and Miranda to the stage. And here is the radio premiere of the piece, With Care.
my question is, why would that be so hard to dance to? <laughs> I think you might fall over eventually. Is <laughs> kind of the issue. No, but I, did I have a notion that dancers thought they could break their bodies to, <laughs> to dance to that? No, I mean our dancers could take anything. I'm sure. But uh, what did uh, you have in mind? I mean, well, it's it's hard without the arc of the of the evening before it. But Bobby herself has is a master of a kind of dance or or a movement language known as Gaga, not Lady, uh, which is, uh, I don't have the expertise to really discuss it, but I know that it's about uh, using your physicality in a way that reveals the weight of it and the presence of it. It's not it's not a, a form for, for ballerinas or people who want to just be sort of as, you know, so so tiny and skinny that they you know are transparent it's about like the presence of the the whole body thank you Matt O'Coin thank you to the violinists too Keir Gogwilt and Miranda Cookson thanks to George Hicks who recorded the performance music at City Space and helped mix the show our show is produced by Connor Gillies Adam Coleman the artist Susan Coyne and our concertmaster, Mary McGrath. I'm Christopher Leiden. Thank you for joining us on Open Source. <laughs>